We have had a golden age of dining and of food for the last 20 years. We're on pause. I see no reason why that's not going to continue ultimately, because the food culture is so much more ingrained in the general popular culture. I mean, now food is politics, uh, food is culture, uh, food is a spectator sport, uh, and you can travel anywhere in the U.S. and you can get delicious food anywhere. Welcome to Season 6 of Camille's Demi Hour. I am your host, Camille Broderick, and this is Nantucket's NPR station 89.5 WNCK. This is a half-hour show dedicated to the Epicurean world here on Nantucket and beyond. On the show, I interview guests who will share their inspiring and thoughtful perspectives and how they are leading the charge in the ever-changing landscape of food, wine, agriculture, and hospitality. I hope this show broadens your view of this great world we live in and helps you to engage with your community and support your neighbor. Cheers and welcome to the table. Thank you all for joining us today. This is our first show of the season. And being the first show of the season, I wanted to talk about something very important to me. Not champagne. As you all know, I love champagne. But no, I want to talk about the life of the restaurant. I have worked in restaurants for over 20 years, and I want to say that although there are many unknowns in this new frontier that we are venturing on together, and as much as we have heard how the restaurant experience, as we know it, may be changed indefinitely, I take comfort knowing that our hungry stomachs and our innate urge to bond with our fellow friend or diner over a meal is something that cannot be changed within us. We are forever at the mercy of food and will always come to the table to celebrate one gift or each other. And today on the show, we have someone who is a true food believer. That means he's not only a professional glutton, but someone who has dined out more in his life than many others combined, and yet is still hungry for more. He is not a chef or a restaurateur, but he is the restaurant critic of New York Magazine for over 20 years and has contributed to other great publications like The New Yorker and Condé Nast Traveler. He is someone who is resolute in his food quest, and I look forward to hearing this critic's opinion and perspective on the dining world and what the next revolution in food becomes. Welcome, Mr. Adam Platt. Thanks for having me. Yeah, <laughs> it's, thank my, you. it's my pleasure. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to be on Nantucket, even though I'm not in Nantucket. <laughs> I love Nantucket. How can you not love Nantucket, right? How can you not? How can you not love Nantucket? <laughs> Well, the show is all about talking about the great food world on Nantucket. Um, I always felt like it was a concentrated sort of Greenwich Village in my eyes because there was just such variety and some great, great access to great chefs and food. But let's begin the show with your story of becoming a restaurant critic. Last year, you put out a great book called The Book of Eating, Adventures in Professional Gluttony, which does a pretty great job explaining your well-trained palate and how this profession uh, was a perfect fit for you. If I may start by quoting you. From your book. I have a few great quotes from this book because Adam, you're uh, you're, yeah. you're a fantastic yeah. writer. We always we always love to be quoted. It's a wonderful <laughs> thing. So as far as I'm concerned, this whole show can be you quoting me and I'll just sit here and listen. I'm more than happy to do that. <laughs> Quote the restaurant critic's job turned out to be the perfect vehicle for a rambling, inquisitive, dyspeptic personality who wasn't a classic company man or much of a team player at all. I would discover that the actual review, part cultural essay, part personal diary, part service journalism, and part travel and cultural commentary involved bits and pieces of all the various styles of writing I'd attempted or failed at over the years, unquote. 
Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, that, that quote is sad, but true. Um, I grew up, I, uh, as, as I say in the book, and the book is really a memoir of my life through food. I, I was born in Washington, D.C. Um, both of my parents uh, grew up in New York City, so they're both native New Yorkers. Uh, my dad joined the Foreign Service. Uh, I, he, he wanted to become a diplomat, so he joined the Foreign Service uh, out of college. And uh, very early in my life, I was born in D.C., but so, shortly after I was born, we moved uh, to Asia. And so I spent most of my uh, formative dining years uh, in Asia, first in Taiwan, uh, where both of my parents studied a Mandarin because my, pa- my father ended up as a what, what used to be in those days called a China hand, a, a China specialist, and the Foreign Service, uh, I think they still sent their, their people to Taiwan to learn Mandarin. So we were there for two years, uh, lived in a small town called, Ta- it was not that small, so you know, now it's a city, but it, it, a provincial city called, called, called Taichung. Uh, and this was in the 60s, and Taichung in the 60s was, uh, you know, this, this great refugee camp for all of the failed capitalists uh, from the, uh, who fled the Chinese Revolution. So it was, the island was filled with uh, well-known chefs and chauffeurs and dining, diamond merchants. And so you could sample all these delicious kinds of uh, Chinese food from all the different provinces, from Sichuan, from the north, northern cuisine, you know, sort of the dumpling noodle cuisine of Beijing and, 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 and the north, the north of China, uh, dim sum, everything like that. So me and my brothers, uh, who were, you know, large, healthy eating individuals, literally coming from the U.S., where we basically subsisted on, you know, frozen dinners and uh, casseroles, you know, pre-war casseroles. We, we, we thought it was a heaven and we sort of ate our way through Asia for the next 10, 15 years. And because my parents were New Yorkers, they were believers in the restaurant culture. So that wherever we lived, we went from Taiwan to Hong Kong. I ended up graduating from high school in Tokyo from the American school in Japan. Wherever we went, they would cultivate this idea, A, that restaurants and dining and food uh, were a window into whatever community and culture you happen to be find yourself in. It was the easiest way to feel some sense of community and some sense of how the culture worked. And it was also, by the way, going to be delicious. So they always cultivated, they love to explore restaurants as New Yorkers do, and they love to cultivate these regular spots. So we had a regular uh, Mongolian barbecue in, in Taichung. We had regular dim sum places we went to in Hong Kong. Uh, you know, regular fancy French restaurants, even in Hong Kong, because Hong Kong back in those days, a long time ago, as it is today, was really a melting pot for all kinds of styles of dining, um, even more so than Taiwan. Uh, you know, and, and, and then in Tokyo, we had a favorite sushi place where we went. It's this like, ongoing, you, know, you have this ongoing theme that that's sort of your touchstone is, yeah. the, is the local restaurant, well, it was, but carries yeah, through in real also, life. It, it was the Tony Bourdain lifestyle before Tony Bourdain yeah. thought he was going to do what he would do. Uh, and, and the whole rambling, traveling world of the food tourism is, and, and you know, food tourism and the gastronaut, the great sort of which grew up in the in the aughts after you know you know during this period of great sort of food, really a food renaissance that we've just lived through over the last twenty years, not just in New York but all around the country. Um, you know, anyway, so we were doing that earlier. 
But it really so we sets developed your palate. It, yeah. I mean, you, yeah, we developed yeah. this healthy appetite. You know, palate. I mean, I don't think I think palate. I don't think my palate is that great. But I have eaten a lot of food, so I've had a lot of experience. Yeah, I think having the sense of all those right. really right. unctuous flavors as a at a young age, I think, uh, does right. impact well, you to know, some degree. Yeah, a little bit. Well, I had what I, what I what I developed was I developed this appetite for experience yeah. uh, through, through food and maybe authenticity. I mean, I feel uh, yeah a little sure. bit of you know is this. I think you yeah. were talking about um, yeah. in one of your recent reviews about uh, Thomas Keller's new restaurant where you're talking about the chicken Kiev and it just didn't taste like your chicken Kiev right. of 20 years ago. <laughs> so. no, right. Well, that, that was, again, that was my opinion. Other critics love that chicken Kiev. But, uh, but uh, and also like you remember the stuff, you know, you know food memories. So. Oh, yeah. They're, they're memories. And often I think if I went back and I went to these places that we thought were so fabulous, they probably wouldn't because my palate has developed anyways what i did i wanted to be a journalist right a lot a lot of foreign service kids or army kids or these kids who live these peripatetic lives um i I think many of i I have a lot of friends from those days who went into journalism because it's a way to perpetuate that lifestyle you're used to being sort of observing the surface of things uh moving around from place to place is actually something that's becomes weirdly fun and interesting as opposed to staying in one town. And so you're looking for ways to perpetuate this lifestyle. So that was my idea, you know, and I went through very, I say in the book, I went through various different different uh, types of, of writing. I attempted to be a foreign correspondent. I worked for the New Yorker, et cetera. And fairly late in my career, I was offered a job as a, to be a restaurant critic of New York, which was like, the New York Magazine, which I, you know, I, I thought it was sort of interesting, but it wasn't my my plan. And it turned out to be because of New York and because of the timing. I started the job in 2000, uh, which in those days the food world was still this small, cosseted, uh, somewhat self-regarding group of eccentrics, right? Mm-hmm. And I was the critic for 20 years, and during that period. Uh, not just in New York, but all over the country, uh, food became much more than that. It became uh, culture, it became politics. Uh, great chefs started cooking, not just in New York, but all, but all over the country. And so it was this uh, window into the culture, which turned out to be a great subject and to be, um, you know, not just a personal subject, but a way, a, a way to look at the culture. So it, it, it was a weird, it was uh, fortuitous. It, it turned out to really to be my, my sort of subject yeah. and, and all writers are looking for their subjects and i you know i, I fell into my you know you know you, know, you never know <laughs> so from your experience by the way you never talk about how many restaurants you've been to i wonder if you actually have that number but mm-hmm. it's thousands no thousands. but it's, it's, a, it's a lot it's a lot and uh you know i let and i did uh, one of the reasons that i was i got the job i think is that i had written about i was a, a writer for Conrad's kind of traveler which is a glossy travel magazine and food would pop in, you know, when, when given the chance to write about anything I want to write about, food would often pop in. And so that's, I think, how they got the idea. And so clearly it was something that I enjoyed and like to talk about and like to write about. But I've never viewed myself as a great gourmet. Like I never viewed myself as a great, you know, having this refined palate. And I, I think I say in the book that as far as food writing goes, there tend to be two different kinds of, of, of food writers, at least certainly when I started out. There are those that talk about the recipes and focus really what's on the plate in front of them. 
and then there are those who write about the experience of, of eating and, and the sort of the cultural, uh, you know, weirdness of it. And, and I, that was really the, the, the school of, of writer that I, I followed, sort of the yeah, more... You, it was you more know, almost not, objective not big, than subjective. You were really, like you said you in the book, that you were, just, does this place represent what a consumer would want yeah, to go and be and, and, and experience? Yeah, and here's my experience. So, so to, as you said in that quote, it is a combination of various things. And, and you know, I also say in the book that there's maybe more than one <laughs> restaurant critic. It's very subjective. But when you're trying to be a restaurant critic, and you know this, you've eaten a lot of restaurants, you've worked in restaurants, your experience as a diner changes uh, not just day to day, but minute to minute. Right. It depends on where you're seated in the restaurant. Do they give you a bad table? Are they treating you badly? Uh, is the chef sick that day? Uh, you know, is the weather bad? Are you in a bad mood? All these things affect uh, your experience and enjoyment of, of certain restaurants, um, which is why, you know, criti- the, 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 the fancy critics, the, the, you know, classically the Michelin, you know, the critics try and go again and again and then develop this opinion. Uh, but, I, you know, anyone who's been a critic uh, know that the opinion, even for Michelin, even for you know the great uh, mandarins of the New York Times like Craig Claiborne, it's still their considered opinion. Right. That 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 that's what it is. Let me answer your let me answer your thousands of restaurants. I, in the book, I also talk about the the dark side of being a restaurant critic. I think I have literally eaten in thousands of places, and although it's a although it's a a, a wonderful job, it's still a job, and it comes with all sorts of attend into various attendant sort of you know risks of 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 of, of a difficult job uh you know you you get uh, you know during the course of my i've had gout attacks i've got you know i've developed type 2 diabetes which i didn't have before you know you you, you gain pounds and lose pounds yeah your, your so dieting you, you excursions really, for you really yeah you really have humorous. to figure out how to make your way through it Thank you, everyone, for joining us. This is Camille Broderick, the host of Camille's Demi Hour. And we are speaking with Adam Platt, the restaurant critic for New York Magazine, among many other great uh, journalism uh, contributions he's given. But from your experience, explain what you think really makes or breaks a restaurant. Perhaps some of your insight could help some restaurants reopening in this time. And what is most important versus unnecessary? Um, you know... It's a t- it's it, that's not not easy to define uh, because I mean just look at look at the last twenty years and what uh, when I started being a restaurant critic uh, the idea of not just the critics well really the critics who then when I started being a restaurant critic um, information was disseminated in a, in a in a basic way right you had these 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 you know the Ruth Reichels of the world. Uh, these critics who would take time to gather the various tastes of what was going on. And I, th- I think the metaphor I use is they were like miners uh, in, in, in a, down in the mine with these headlamps sort of shining their headlamps on different things and finding these little gems and these little discoveries and then bringing them back to the public, right? And saying, you know, t- taking weeks to write their articles and saying, here, this is what you should be enjoying. And then the public sort of saying, okay, we enjoyed this. This is great. We'll, we'll do whatever you say. So that was the classic gourmet culture, the classic uh, four-star New York Times restaurant culture, the, the classic Michelin three-star restaurant culture. And 
in the last 20 years, of course, that whole that whole sense of that gourmet world has more or less been obliterated. And you've had this really a revolution. And I, I think in the book, I call it the kitchen slave revolution, where what happened over the course of about 10, 20 years, uh, when I started out in restaurants, the fancy restaurants, the grand restaurants, the kitchen culture was hidden from view, right? The great dining rooms like Le Cirque or Le Bernardin or you know, Lude in New York were patrolled by uh, French you know, gentlemen from Europe in tuxedos, the maitre d's who would guide you around and sort of tell you what to eat, right? What, what, what's good today? What, these are our specials and talk to you in, in, in funny accents. And over the last, over the you know the first ten years of the aughts, um, that culture, thanks to people like Tony Bourdain, thanks to David Chang, thanks to Tom Colicchio, who's a great chef in New York now, he's a media star. Uh, the culture of what was going on in the kitchen, i.e., the things that the chefs obsessed about, like like the perfect ingredient, like the far of the table, you know, stuff. Where's the per- where do I get the perfect carrot? Uh, how do I cook the perfect steak? What kind of food do I like to eat as a cook after hours? I eat bowls of ramen and burgers and all the pork chops. You know, cooks are always privately obsessed with pork. And, and, and you know, when I started doing this, writing about restaurants, those obsessions blew out into the culture and became the obsessions of the dining world. You know, thanks to a lot of different things. Thanks to the internet. Thanks to a lot of different things. Thanks to a newer generation of diners. Like my parents were. Even though my parents were relatively enlightened, most people's parents growing up in the U.S. in the 50s, 60s, and 70s basically did what Julia Childs or Jacques Pepin told them, right? I like my French food. I'm cooking my French. Yeah, they did what they told them. The newer generation, I, I, call, I think in the book I called the Starbucks generation. They didn't grow up at McDonald's. They didn't grow up on Swanson's TV dinners. They grew up going to Starbucks, which is a, or in other places. We're very, it's very Starbucks is actually a very sophisticated place, right? You're creating your own coffee. You're, you you know about the beans. You're saying, give me a half calf. You know, blah blah blah. These kids, they're not kids anymore. Uh, had more confidence and were more interested in you know what in what went into to, to, to mm-hmm. cooking. They wanted to see it, and so you literally had. This is sort of a, a windy explanation, but you literally had uh, in, in, in that period, the kitchen itself moved out into the dining room, right? I mean, the open kitchen moved out into the dining room and became the stage around which people gathered and looked and were obsessed about. And so the whole idea of what made a great restaurant changed. And critics actually, my, me, like you talk about the Seminole restaurants in New York, in the early aughts, the Seminole restaurants were... I mean, you'd have to say Momofuku Noodle Bar was David Chang's restaurant and April Bloomfield's, um, the, the, the now disgraced Spotted Pig. You know, the gastropub model, which was another model of casual dining, but casual dining done in a very accessible, uh, but also, you know, expert style. And that became the way most people now eat. And that became sort of the model that, that, that traveled around the country. I'm sure in Nantucket, if you go to a restaurant, that's, you know, you're, you're looking at your fresh caught stuff. Maybe well, I think is. one thing that was in the book that was uh, sort of resonated with me is that when you talked about the evolution of the food from into the farm to table with the Clickios and with his craft restaurant and with David Chang and just one thing Dan they Barber. all Dan Barber's another one, you know. Yeah, and one thing they yeah, all they're... shared was the philosophy of respecting ingredients and technique, and you chose those two words. And to me, those. Right. 
those still resonate for what makes something great. Um, you need right. great ingredients, and you need to know how to do it, <laughs> how to right. work with them. And so, and so that's your that's your generation. As time goes on, as this great uh, kitchen slave revolution gathered steam, and as you know, people like Tony Bourdain, who was the great Johnny Appleseed for the kitchen slave revolution, who spread this idea of simple food all over the world, and this is how you enjoy your culture. This is how you, you know, is that is that gained Steve, these restaurants became uh, these, you know, restaurants that a, a fancy critic in the olden days would have given, say, one star to. Right. And I, I talk in the book how, about how critics hate the star system because it's this this objective system on this subjective world. Right. Stars cause us all kinds of headaches. But th- those one star restaurants became the height of gourmet fashion. And the four and five star restaurants went out of business. Like A lot of the French centric restaurants. Uh, the Le restaurants, the La restaurants, uh, certainly <laughs> New York, w- went out of business. Uh, and the ones that stayed in business, uh, you know, their, their clientele got old, they moved away, uh, the rents got too high. Uh, there are a few of them that still survive today. You know, they, they own their building, so they could afford to survive, but many of them didn't, didn't survive. So that that's what happened during my watch as a critic. And And so this is a windy way of saying mm-hmm what goes into a good restaurant is different now than it was when I started. Yeah. Right. And so I think what, it, what goes into it now is what you're saying, uh, you know, uh, uh, simplicity done with style, great ingredients, but you also need that as in any artistic endeavor and, and, and cooking is art and it's art and theater. Uh, you need originality. Right. Well, you also region, talk about accessibility and restaurants being like democratic in a way. Yeah, yeah, That's, they're, they're much more democratic. But in this, you, you still need originality and you need talent. Like Period. you've been to, there's a there's a thousand farm to table restaurants. That, that that style, which again was popularized in New York, because that's what happens. New York is the place. It's sort of the cultural bazaar where tastes are, are made and then disseminated out of the world. That style of dining, which uh, Tom Colicchio didn't invent it, his restaurant called Kraft, which opened in the early aughts, but he 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 turned it into the height of New York snobbery. You know, the idea that, you know, if you're, you're having all your farmers, uh, you know, you're all your suppliers on your menu, and you know, everything's ingredient-based and simple, and, and getting all the frippery, all the sort of old-fashioned, old-world French frippery out of, out of the production, that... That style is, is aped all over the place. Yeah. But it's not, it's, it, it, you know, you, as a critic, what you're looking for is a little touch of originality. Most people can tell, well, wow, this is really delicious. Or, this is delicious. There's, there's delicious food everywhere, but not everyone does it with this original twist. And by the way, things are changing again, right? In the food press now, uh, it's a bit, people want to know stories. They want to know where the chefs come from. They want to know. Uh, they want to talk about ethnicity. They want to talk about culture. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's evolving all the time. You know, if you, if you, if you look at the, you know, the, the dining food section in the New York Times, the stuff that's featured there now is just totally different than what was featured there 10 years ago. Thank you all for listening. This is the end of today's show. However, tune in next week to part two of our show with Mr. Adam Platt, the food critic for New York Magazine for over 20 years, as we continue our conversation about the state of restaurants and the next food revolution. Uh. 
Thank you all for listening. This is Camille's Demi Hour, and I am your host, Camille Broderick. Tune in every weekend on Saturdays and Sundays at 11.30 a.m. on 89.5 WNCK. If you would like to hear this full episode or past shows, you can find me on iTunes. Cheers. Cheers.